0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. We're in the first 11 verses this morning, Philippians chapter 3. I'd like to invite you to stand with me now that you're nice and comfortable, and let's pray together. This also provides you with the seventh inning stretch, so your mind can only take what your seat can endure, so let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word, We lift up our community, we we lift up those that are involved in bondage and slavery to human trafficking, that you would be able to deliver them, Lord, and bring them into uh, hope and encouragement. And as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. Give us hearts that are willing to hear, feet and lives and hands that are willing to respond. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Oftentimes, we are looking for and longing for security, aren't we? Whether it's our homes, we say we want to have a security system, or it's your computer. You've got so much of your information on your computer. How do you keep your computer secure? Or from your phone, your social security number. Maybe you've had the experience where you go to file your taxes and they say, you know, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, someone's already filed under your social security number and we've already issued a tax return to them. And you've been the victim of having your identity stolen. I think on a deeper level, we long to have security in relationships. And we're looking for that acceptance and identity inside of relationships and we're saying i got to make sure that this relationship is is secure. For sure we want financial security. If I could just have that job that would provide for my needs and maybe a little bit beyond my needs and what's the right investment? You know it's unfortunate you got to save just to be able to get old right and that starts to drive us nuts and am I saving enough money just to be able to Have that long term care if I live to be 70, 80, 90 uh, years old. We're longing for financial security. But oftentimes we're looking in the wrong places. God does not promise earthly security, He promises security in our relationship with Him. So this morning we're going to look at ultimate security, how we can have security in the Lord. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Philippians, you know the theme is simple. It's joy, Jesus, Jesus first for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians one twenty one, chapter two, others to esteem others better than myself to walk into a room and put other people's needs before my own. Chapter three and four, Paul does focus on himself, Jesus, others, you. We put ourselves last, and we need to think appropriately, biblically about ourselves. And Paul begins to write about his own mindset. In chapters 3 and chapters 4. So I hope this morning you're encouraged. I hope that you leave in a place of having more security in the Lord. Verse 1, finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Like any good pastor, Paul says finally and goes on for two more chapters. He's really only halfway through the book, right? It's always scary when pastors say, in conclusion, they don't mean it, right? That means buckle up. You got at least 15 more minutes and it says, finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord. He says, I don't have any problem. It's not tedious for me. It's not a burden for me to remind you of this again, because it is a safeguard for you. There's safety in rejoicing in the Lord. So if you're writing notes, taking notes, take this down, ultimate security, rejoice in the Lord. It's an umbrella of protection for you. What does it mean to rejoice? It means to take joy, to be glad. Uh, Yesterday here on the south end of the the building in the morning, uh, we put in a a sand volleyball court and I had the opportunity to play for the first time and I found myself getting into it. When I, when I first started playing, they're like, hey, Eric, you need to come over here and play. And then after a while, as I'm playing volleyball, we, we won. And I was getting all pumped up. And I'm jumping up and down and giving bear hugs. Yeah! You know, and I'm like, wait a second. This is just a little pickup game of volleyball. But I was enjoying it, right? And you think about what are some things that you, you enjoy, that you rejoice in? Maybe good food. You know, there's a particular meal that you just enjoy, For sure, relationships and friendship and inside of our family with our spouses and and our kids. And if you're single with your parents and brothers and sisters and good friends, and, and we enjoy those things. Maybe it's a hobby, the mountains. How much more so the Lord, that we're glad in the Lord. You know, if I can get excited over a volleyball game, how much more so can I get excited about the Lord? So, how do we rejoice in the Lord? First, we look at who He is. We take joy in who He is. He's our Father. He's gracious, which means He gives us things that we don't deserve. He's merciful, which means He withholds the judgment that I do deserve. He's slow to anger. Isn't that great? He's just, He's faithful. It's impossible for God to lie. And we take a moment just to rejoice in him and be glad in him and who he is. But we also take joy in what God has done, what he's already accomplished. We look at creation and we go, God, you're, you're an awesome creator. We look ultimately at the cross where our greatest need was God's greatest accomplishment, God's greatest deed. He provided salvation for us by the sending of his son. All the fullness of God dwelling in Christ. We're saved. What, what God has done. But we also take joy in the promises of God. Romans eight twenty eight promises that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Just as we heard a moment ago that God can take where something is evil and turn it for good. Man, God, that's your promise. I rely upon that promise. In a few weeks, we're going to look at Philippians 4, where God promises a peace that surpasses our understanding. That's a promise of God. Eternal life. That's a promise of God given to those who believe. And we go, God, you're preparing a place for me. I take joy in that. I want you to take just a moment, 10 seconds here, and rejoice in the Lord. Something about who God is or what he's done or a promise. What comes to mind? Just thank him right now. man, I need to do that more. Rejoice in the Lord. Because there's safety in rejoicing in the Lord. If I'm rejoicing in something of this earth, it's temporary. It can be taken away. But to rejoice in God is something that can never be taken away. And so it provides ultimate security. In Luke chapter 10, the disciples come back from their first missionary journey. They're sent out in groups of two. They're really excited that they've seen amazing things happen. Demons are cast out. People are healed. And Jesus responds and he says, guys, don't rejoice in this. He's teaching us. These are good things, but I don't want your ultimate joy to be there. I want you to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Why? Because there would be seasons where they wouldn't see God using their life. The circumstances are going to change. I'm sure you've experienced that. Times where God's using you, but other times it feels like God's put you on the shelf. But we know if you're a believer, your name's always written in heaven. You can always take joy in that truth and in that fact that your name is written in heaven. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 tells us, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's where we're going to find strength is to take joy in the Lord. I want to read to you out of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 through 19. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. It says, "...though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation." The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Do you think that the prophet felt like rejoicing in the Lord? His emotions probably were headed towards discouragement. When there is no livestock in the barn, When there's no crops in the field, he says, yeah, I will choose to rejoice in God. Please note this, rejoicing in the Lord is not based upon emotions, but a choice of the will. I'm choosing to rejoice in the Lord, because he hasn't changed, and he's good, and he is faithful in my life. Verse two, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Ultimate security, you have to beware of legalists. These are a strong warning. The word beware is used three times. Watch out. These guys will come in and take your joy in the simplicity of Jesus Christ. Dogs, that's a pretty strong statement, to call somebody a dog. That's how Paul felt about this group that was propagating false teaching. Normally, the Gentiles would be called dogs by Jews, but here, Paul flips it on his head and he is labeling those Judaizers, those that would come into the early church and say Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people, this is great that you've trusted Christ for salvation, but now in order to really know that you're saved, to really mean this, men, you have to get circumcised. And there's, there's where we get the word mutilation, it's literally referring to those that are teaching Gentiles that they would have to get circumcised, the mutilation of the flesh. So how might this apply to us? You know, this is not something that we see necessarily that we're facing today, this, this type of teaching on circumcision. But we are facing those that will add to the Word of God. Now, would we all agree this morning that it is unsafe to change the Word of God? right? But we always think of taking stuff out of the Word of God. That's a way to change the Word. But adding to it is also changing it. If you're baking, and you've got a recipe going, just go ahead and add two or three things and see see what happens, right? It's probably not going to turn out very well. It's subtle, but it comes in like this, and it's things like, well, if you really love God, and you really want to follow God, him closely, you're not going to play cards. Because cards lead to gambling. And that's the devil's workshop. That's where the Satan destroys lives. So, thus says the Lord, the 11th commandment, you shall not play cards. (laughs) There was a time in the church where that was the common teaching, you know. How about this? You know, don't dance. Thou shalt not dance. If, if you dance, look out. You don't love the Lord, and you're not, not following the Lord. Well, is that in Scripture? No, no, it's not. You will probably meet somebody in your Christian journey that will come to you and say, in order to follow Christ, you need to observe the Sabbath in its strictest form. So as the sun goes down on Friday, have to have complete rest until the sun goes down again on Saturday, that 24-hour period then you'll know that you're, you're following, following Christ. And what that does, it's all works-based confidence in the flesh, and it causes us to lose that simplicity of enjoying the Lord, that simplicity of his grace and, and his character. And that's what Paul is warning against. So to have security, you got to beware. You have to watch out for false teachers that would come into your life and rob you from that joy in the Lord. In verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This would be very controversial, very offensive to a Jew who's trusting in their circumcision to have relationship with God. They saw circumcision to be very vital and very important. It was the confirmation of the sign of the covenant. And here Paul is saying, no, true circumcision, true relationship with God is not based on this outward act, but a heart that's been transformed by the Lord. This was always the intention of God with Circumcision. That it it marked a heart that had been changed and transformed by the Lord. So here's three things to know that marks a genuine relationship with God. Worship God in the Spirit. Can you do that? Do you desire to do that? Is the Holy Spirit leading you into greater worship? Then that marks a true relationship with God. The word worship in the Greek here, it has the idea of service. So it is a worship that involves our praise. It is a worship that involves the raising of our hands, but it's also a worship that involves our feet, that impacts our lives, that we say, God has touched me with his grace, so I desire to, to serve him. The Spirit of God is leading me into to service. This could involve washing dishes. This could be involved in helping a neighbor rebuild a fence. This could be taking a coworker out to lunch, stopping and praying uh, with someone. The idea is worship that involves service then we find rejoice in Christ Jesus. We know that this letter was written in Greek, and this is a different Greek word that's translated into the English word rejoice. So sometimes you'll take two different Greek words, and the translators will use the same English word. And this is a different Greek word, and the idea here is to boast in Christ. And some of your translations will even render it as such, to to boast in Christ. And this is where our confidence lies, and so instead of going around saying I'm really good at keeping the law, I'm really good at keeping the Sabbath, I'm really good at not playing cards, you know, I'm really good at not going to movies or whatever the, the case may be. Some extra biblical rules that have been placed upon you. You boast in Jesus. My confidence is in Jesus. He's my savior. I'm trusting him for salvation and my very existence. And then he says, have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. A legalistic, rules-based relationship with God is going to lend itself to either pride or condemnation. Because when we're doing well, we're feeling prideful. When we fail, we feel condemnation. And here Paul's saying, we're not supposed to trust in ourselves. We're not to have any confidence in ourselves. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. We trust in him. Verse four, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. So Paul says, if we're gonna play this game of having access to God and salvation through works, being confident in the flesh, I can play this game too. And he begins to go through his resume and he lists out his trophies. So imagine, visual image here, you've got Paul's trophy case, according to the flesh. And then also think about what would your trophy case be? What would you tend to put confidence in? Is it your ability in a particular area? Is it your academics? Is it the degrees behind your name? Is it your family background? What is it that you would, is it your physical health that, Tends to lead us to a place of having confidence in the flesh. So Paul writes first thing, number one, circumcise the eighth day. Probably not the first thing on your resume that you're, you have confidence in. But for the nation of Israel, if you're going to have a works based relationship with God, you didn't get to choose if you got circumcised on the fourth day or the ninth day. God's commanded in His word that the boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul says, I've seen the, f- the photos. It was the eighth day. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm an Israelite, not just any Israelite, but of the tribe of Benjamin. The first king of Israel, King Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin were fierce warriors. They were the only tribe that stayed true to David there in the, the southern kingdom. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. So if I was going to have confidence in the flesh, he was part of this elite group, 6,000 men that gave their lives to fulfilling the law in utmost detail. We know from history that they would even tithe on their herb garden. Can you imagine? So you got some cilantro coming up, and you're like, what's 10% here? I got to count this out and make sure that I take in this 10% and give it to the work of the Lord. He was a Pharisee concerning the law, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul, before he was saved, believed that it was blasphemy to claim that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, so he would persecute Christians. He would arrest Christians. He would have Christians killed. He stood and held the coats of the men that killed Stephen, and he watched Stephen be martyred. He had zeal. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. says, you'd be difficult to find some commandment of the law that I wasn't blameless in. Does this mean that Paul wasn't a sinner? Did this mean that Paul didn't need salvation by grace? No, because we know he was inwardly guilty, wasn't he? He writes in Romans chapter 7 and he says that covetousness is what tripped him up. In his heart he was covetous towards others. It says who's going to deliver me from this body of death describing his own sin and then Romans 8 verse 1 he says now there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's using this as a sake of illustration that if someone was going to trust in their own works, Paul could have gone down that road. But here's the key verse, verse 7. But things that were gained to me, these that I've counted loss for Christ. Ultimate security number three is loss for gain. Loss for gain. In order to gain Christ and the excellency of the knowledge of who he is, Paul's saying, I had to pack up my trophy case. Put it in a cardboard box and... No longer depend upon it. It's not a works-based relationship with the Lord. For some, it's really difficult to trust Christ for salvation, to receive grace, because according to the world's standards, they are a good person. My grandma Warren, she lived to be in her uh, late 90s. An amazing woman. My mom was the youngest of five. So my grandma was 44 and my grandpa was 46 when my mom was born. So when she graduated high school, my grandpa retired. A lot of people thought her parents were her grandparents. So when I came along, my grandparents were in their older years. You know, I, I knew them more in their, in their elderly years. And my grandma was such a loving woman, such a, such a kind woman. She loved to bake pies. And you didn't go to her house without her getting out one of her frozen pies and putting it in the oven. My grandpa would get up every morning. My grandma would be in the kitchen and she'd stop and go over to my grandpa and give him a kiss right on the lips, you know, an old lady kiss to an old man, you know, and like, oh man, grandma's just, just awesome. But it was difficult for her to hear that she was a sinner, you know, you go, grandma, you're, you're a sinner and you need a savior. And she was good at going to church. She, she'd always go to, to her church. And in her church, they didn't teach the gospel, They didn't point her to to the cross of, of Jesus Christ. But in her 90s, she came to understand that she was a sinner. And she needed to trust Christ by his grace. She had to pack up her trophies. She had to say, no, I can't depend upon these things in order to have right relationship with God. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You've never received salvation by grace. You've got to lose those things in order to trust Christ. But there's an application for us as children of God as well. As believers, a lot of times we want to trust in those things that we're good at. And find identity in those things that we're good at. But God says, don't have any confidence in the flesh. If we want to know Christ in a greater way, we've got to pack up those things. Well, what does that mean? That you don't use your education? That maybe you give up your job? Or No, it's an attitude of the heart. And saying, I know that the source of my identity is not found in these things. My identity is found in the fact that I'm loved by God. And see, that's ultimate security. Because what if your identity is found in your job? What happens when you lose your job? You don't have identity anymore. That stinks, you know? You're up a creek without a paddle at that point, right? What if you find your identity in relationships? What if that relationship changes? God forbid what if your spouse passes away? Good for them. They get to go home to be with the Lord, but all of a sudden you're you're lost of identity. What if your identity is in your kids and being a mom or dad? Well, they tend to move out, move away and don't call, right? All of a sudden you're lost. You're like, "I I don't have any identity. I've been I've been relying upon this for for so long." What if it's a ministry that God's given to you? We we tend to really fall in love with some things that God allows us to do and ways that he serves. And what if God closes that door and we're not able to do that anymore? And all of a sudden, we, we don't have any identity. It was all wrapped up inside of that, that ministry. Maybe it's in physical health. Well, what, that can change. And so we say, Lord, I'm thankful for these things, but I'm willing to pack these trophies up, put them in a box and not depend upon them. I'm depending upon you. I'm depending upon your grace and your love for me. And that's what Paul's saying here. The things that were gained to me, these I counted for loss for Christ. I wasn't depending upon them for my source of identity or salvation. He goes further in verse eight. He says, yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish That I may gain Christ. The New King James is very polite in the translation of rubbish. It literally means dung, feces. Paul is using this analogy and he's saying, I am willing to count loss everything so that I can gain the knowledge of Christ. And the things that I've lost are dung compared to the knowledge of Christ, it's loss for gain. It's lost for gain. Bear with me. We have toilets everywhere in the United States. Praise God for toilets. If you've ever been in countries where they don't, just trust me, right? What goes down the toilet? You're like, really? Is he doing this? Right? What goes down the toilet? Well, it's dung. Dung goes down the toilet. Now, do we care where the dung goes? No. We don't care. It just goes down the pipe and it goes. I don't want to know what they do with it after that. It's disgusting, right? It, it's rubbish. It's garbage. It, okay, you get it, right? So, so what, what is Paul saying here? saying, these things that I've lost, it's been worth it because I've gained a deeper knowledge of Christ. What we do understand from Paul's life is he lost a lot of things because he was following the Lord. We read through his resume, but that was relationship. When he decided to trust Christ for salvation by grace, he lost those relationships in his life and those people became the ones that tried to kill him. From the book of Acts, we know that Paul was a voting member in the Sanhedrin. In order to have that position, you would have to be married. There is a good chance, we don't know for certain, that Paul's wife left him as soon as he trusted Christ for salvation. I mean, could you imagine? Put yourself in her shoes. She's married to a good old Jewish boy, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee. They knew the direction of their lives, persecuting Christians. And Paul's coming in saying, I've been saved by grace. He may have lost his spouse because of his commitment to Christ. We know he lost comfort, he was beaten, and he says, I'm willing to lose these things to gain Christ. Now what Paul is not saying that these things that he lost had no value, but what he is saying is "Is they're nothing compared to the increasing value of the knowledge of Christ. Now church, honestly, this is a little bit scary. Yes, this ultimate security is attractive to us, but you know what this means? That everything is on the table in God's hands. That I don't hold so tightly to a home, to a job, yes even to my own family, to my wife, to to my four kids. And I say, Lord I'm willing to surrender this and place this in your hands. Now again these things are blessings. These things are to be enjoyed. It's not that you're to walk away from your job or walk away from your family or any of those types of things or just never mind your health, but it's a condition of the heart. Do we live our lives with a closed hand to God and say, God, don't touch this. I trust you, but you don't have access to this. Well, newsflash to us, we don't get to have that kind of control with God. We, we We don't have that kind of control. And it's much better for us to open up our hands and realize, you know what? I don't own my spouse. I don't own my kids. They don't belong to me. I don't own my home. I don't. No, Lord, it's, I'm willing to open up my hand and count those things as lost in order to have a greater understanding of who you are. We cannot go deeper in understanding Jesus until we surrender. It goes hand in hand. We can read the word, we can be in Bible study, we can worship, but the condition of the heart is one of surrender. And when we're surrendered, that's then where we're able to gain a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. I don't understand God's economy, but so many times, loss results in gain. When we lose things in our lives, if we choose to and press into Christ, in a way we never would have without the loss, we end up with a greater understanding of who Jesus is. In verse 9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness. He says, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my own righteousness. I'm found in him. My identity is in him. which Which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. He says, I have received righteousness by trusting in Christ. And God is the one who has imputed his righteousness to me. Ultimate security, number four, the last thing, is an aim to know him. Here's Paul's aim. Here's his goal. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Four things are listed here in verse 10 that Paul aims for. The first is, he says, I want to know him. I want to know him. So Paul's number one goal wasn't his 401k. His number one goal wasn't a bigger house or a nicer car. His number one goal wasn't even human relationships. He says, this is my aim to know him. Why is there security in that? Because that'll never be taken away from you. So what's the purpose of my life going forward? Hopefully to know him. And then he says, I want to know the power of your resurrection. He's walked with the Lord for a long time. He's seen God transform his life. But he's still saying, I want to know the power of the resurrection in a greater way in my life. The Christian life isn't trying to conjure up our own power, but trusting in Christ's power, walking in in his power. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. Resurrection power. And he goes on to say fellowship of his sufferings. Now this is where we tend to lose the apostle Paul. Man, amen to the first two. I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. But then to know the fellowship of his sufferings? Paul understands that suffering results in knowing Christ in a greater way. With every cross that we bear, with every trial that we go through in this life, it has the opportunity to know Jesus in a greater way. Any suffering that I've gone through, he's gone through that suffering in in a greater way. Fellowship means to share in common. You find two people that have the same injury, that have gone through the same physical therapy, and they have fellowship with one another. So Paul says, as I suffer, I'm going to know Christ in a greater way. He has a very mature understanding of suffering in his life. If you're suffering or you're going to go through suffering in the future, remember this verse. Remember this truth. This is giving me an opportunity to know Jesus in a greater way. And Paul actually prays for it. And then he says to be conformed to his death. What does that mean? Jesus came and gave his life away for others. Gave his life away as a ransom. And Paul's saying, I want to be conformed to that. I know that that's not the natural, normal trajectory of my life. But God, I want to be conformed to the image of your death. I want to give my life away for your glory to the benefit of others that I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not an earthly security. I would invite you and invite myself, look at these 11 verses and what's the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Is he saying... Child of God, it's time to rejoice in the Lord. Maybe you've got stuff in the barn, maybe you don't, who cares? Rejoice in the Lord. He hasn't changed. That's safety. So do it. Right now, as we are about ready to go back into worship, rejoice in the Lord. Maybe a legalistic mindset, extra biblical rules, has been robbing you from joy in the Lord. Beware of those legalists. You need to apply that and sort that out. Maybe it's loss for gain. It's loss for gain. And say, man, I sure have been trusting in my trophies. I've been putting confidence in the flesh. It's time to lose those. I've sure been holding on to all these things, and it's just choking out joy in my life, and it's time to surrender. It's time to to let go. One thing with Jesus, he demanded surrender. He didn't come and say, hey, Let's just all be friends, and let's hang out on a peer level, and Jesus is my buddy. Now, we have fellowship with Christ, but he came and he said, I'm your Lord, and if you desire to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's a pretty clear, like, hey, I'm in charge here. You've got to surrender. Wouldn't it be nice to get this surrender issue just taken care of once for the rest of our lives? Wouldn't it be great in this June on a Sunday morning at the nine o'clock service, say, Lord, I surrender and never have to come back to this decision again. But what's our tendency? We surrender, we take it back. We surrender, we take it back. So we've got to learn to walk in surrender, to daily surrender to the Lord, to open up our hands to God. What are some things that you need to lay at the feet of Jesus this morning? And then what's your aim, honestly? What's your goal, honestly? Is it to have a great marriage, raise great kids, get through life comfortably? Now, is it wrong to invest in your marriage? No, that's biblical. Is it wrong to invest in your kids? No, that's biblical. But you know what comes above all of that? To know him. So that, that's my aim. I want to know him. And I'm convinced marriage and kids and work life and single life, it all flows out of knowing him. If I get my priorities wrong, it's going to get very difficult. And we come back and saying, yeah, this is my aim. God, give me laser focus this morning. So let's stand and let's pray together. Just pray with me. Holy Spirit, we know that change comes from your working in our lives. It's not by power or by might, but by your Spirit. And would you speak to us individually of what we need to apply from this passage? So allow the Lord to speak to you. Take a hold of it. Jesus, we say yes to you. We surrender afresh to you.